0: Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 204 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian. I am joined by my co-host, Executive producer and a very tired good friend, Craig <laughs> Williams. Craig, I don't think you've had a time to recover from jumping from the Hall- the Christmas party at Walt Disney World mm-hmm. to I watched to the Tuesday Walt Disney World show to editing all those wonderful videos that I'm still watching to um, then my having internet problems for two nights in a row. To where we're now scrambling to get
1: this show recorded and out the door. <laughs> y- you know what? In time. <laughs>
2: <laughs> This is
1: going to be the most exhausting month of my life, I think, overall. Because th- that's just this week and this weekend. And then uh, next week, we have Destination D... I have, mm-hmm. um, and I think you're seeing it too, but I ended up uh, getting invited for a media thing. I have uh, a performance of Cirque du Soleil, Drawn to Life, that I have to yeah. attend. I'm and, seeing it too. I'm really looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, so that's all next week, and then the week after that being Thanksgiving, and Wrapping up with connecting with Walt and then December and prepping for a marathon show that we're doing for the Diz Unplugged at some point. I, I, if I'm lucky, I will get to sleep maybe like three nights before Christmas. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's crazy. So,
0: yeah. Well, let's, let's hope that um, Santa will bring you something very nice. In, yeah. In, down the chimney I, <laughs> for all that Xanax work you're doing and, uh, <laughs> and and a massage yeah whatever the opposite of
1: caffeine and pain is that's what santa will bring me this year well you're making memories craig yeah. and that
0: is going to, <laughs> and that is going to be the theme of our holiday show this year you know we got such a positive response about the how you shared your memories, both audio as well as writing them in, on your memories of Walt Disney World. We wanted to expand upon that for our holiday show. This year, which is going to be a little earlier and, and Craig talked about that on the Walt Disney World show and I'll talk about it in a moment is that, um, we want you to share your holiday memories of being at the parks and we're not going to limit it to Walt Disney World. We also, we also want to expand it to Disneyland as well because Disneyland's been around a little longer and i have a, a lot most of my christmas memories are from a lot of them are from disneyland as well as walt disney world and so we want we want all of our listeners to be able to share their memories of the parks and maybe even international parks i, I was maybe just maybe you about spend to say a that. really cool christmas at I, can't she, Disneyland Paris at Christmas. I think would be wonderfully magical, especially if there's snow. Carol and I spent a Christmas season at Tokyo Disneyland and it did snow. So, uh, so a lot of fun memories. So we'd like you to share your Christmas memories, but we have a tighter deadline this time around. So Craig, do you want to go into that a
3: bit?
1: I, I absolutely will. So I, I think, I think you put it perfectly uh let's not limit it to the the domestic parks let's make it all of the theme parks whether it's international or here in the united states if you have a fond memory that you shared during the holiday season please please share it uh and you know maybe next year we'll uh, just extend it beyond that to your disney holiday memories at home too because deep down i'm really hoping that we have someone uh scandinavian country that watches from all of us to all of you every single year, and we can hear about that. <laughs> I know people who do,
0: and they report back to me every year. Well, that's <laughs> what, what was shown, yeah.
1: and 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 they confirm with me that it was broadcast. Yeah, see, I, I I'm hoping. You know, we'll, we'll stick with the parks this year and then next year we'll, we'll widen it out a little bit unless we, we come up with something even more fun for it. But yeah, we have a a limited time. So this episode will go out on our, on our November 26th episode. That is going to be our last episode of this season for connecting with Walt. So we are taking December off, uh, visibly and uh you know audio wise to you you won't hear us through all of december we'll be busy getting ready for the the next round of recordings that we're going to do when when we come back from our little hiatus with brand new episodes so you have very little time to get your stories to us but multiple different ways to do it if you want to record audio on your phone whether it's a android device or an iphone there's audio recorders right on your phone that you can use, or you can download third-party apps if you want to. Just make sure they're free. Uh, record the audio, and then all you have to do is email that audio to me, Craig at DisneyInfo.com, C-R-A-I-G at DisneyInfo.com. And as soon as you do that, I'll be able to pull the audio, and we'll be able to play it right in the episode. But if you feel uncomfortable, actually, you know, sharing your voice with the world, you can always just write a nice little summary of your memories, and either Michael or myself will read it live to everyone out there who is listening, and the same email can be used for that, craig at disneyinfo.com. Just go ahead and send all of that there, and we will compile it and get it ready for for our, our big, uh, end of the season holiday episode and just share and we'll share our memories as well too with it. So mm-hmm. it's not just going to be all of yours. We're going to, we're going to put ours in there and, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a really special episode. So I hope everyone's yeah. able to, uh, participate that has a memory that they want to share.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. So anyway, so thank you for sharing. And Craig, will you also be posting on social media? Absolutely. So people can yes. remind folks about that, too, yeah. in it case be, they
1: yeah. forget after they <laughs> listen to this. <laughs> exactly. I'll, I'll make sure uh, primarily I'll, I'll do it on our Facebook and then our Twitter. I will include my email address so that way you know exactly where to send it to because, you know, things things happen. Mistakes happen. Even though I spell out Craig at Disney Info, sometimes you, you just – hit one letter wrong so I'll make sure that I include my email address on our uh, Facebook page facebook.com/ dis unplugged and then on Twitter connecting Walt is our our uh, Twitter username on that so look on our social media for for my actual email address and all the instructions on how to send us uh, your either written story or your audio story for us but really looking forward to it i think it's going to be a lot of fun hearing how other people celebrate it the holidays at walt disney world disneyland or the international parks Mm -hmm. yeah be a lot of fun looking forward to it
0: well last week we started to talk about the give kids the world dis family reunion 2021 panels that uh that I attended from September 9th to 11th was the whole event. And this week, we're going to share with you an interview that I did during that time. This was my dream interview. And that ever since I was on the Disneyland show, I've always wanted to interview Tony Baxter. And through a sort of all kinds of comedy of errors and might not Tony Baxter agreed several times to be on both this show and the Disneyland show. Every time he gave me his email address, I couldn't read his writing or then he retired or he changed his email address or, or it was something. And so finally what happened was as part of our, the marathon show that we did for the dis family reunion in that last hour or so, uh, I was asked to interview, Pete asked me to interview Tony Baxter. And then Jason Sorrell sort of came along as a happy surprise. And what we are bringing to you is that dream interview. The interview I've always wanted to do for um, by almost 10 years with the Diz now is, um, is the interview with Tony Baxter and Jason Sorrell. So you may have watched it if you were watching that marathon show, and then Craig also released it as a standalone video a while back. But um, for those of you that didn't um, weren't able to watch the video, we want to bring to you uh, probably one of the top five things I have done as the Diz Historian, is my interview with Tony Baxter and Jason Sorrell. We are honor this has been a dream uh, interview that i have wanted to do ever since the show started and I, i i i don't know if he knows to come over here but okay but tony baxter i have met him several times at the walt disney family museum he has agreed to be on connecting with walt every single time and has written down his email address I made the mistake of not looking at it before I walked away, and when I got home, I looked at his email address and thought, what language did Mr. Baxter write his email address in, because I can't read it, and that is why you've never received any information from me. So, before you go today, (laughs) I'm writing it down. I was anyway. going to
3: be a pharmacist before I became a pharmacist. <laughs>
0: or a surgeon yeah. or something like that. So we have two what I think are arguably the greatest artists, storytellers, um, designers <laughs> in mm-hmm. theme park entertainment today. And, um, and that's Tony Baxter and Jason Sorrell. You've probably read Jason's books if you're a real Disney fan. Mm-hmm. So welcome to the Disney Unplugged.
3: Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. If I sit like this, it's because I was on a uh, Delta flight yesterday in uh, the back of the bus. <laughs> oh, gosh. And it was flying time. is such
0: a pleasant experience. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. especially today, Simply wearing delightful. the mask cross-country. Yeah. But now we we hear themed entertainment, and we thought, okay, what does that mean? What is themed entertainment?
3: Well, that's a million-dollar question. No, <laughs> I think it's, you know, it's putting people in a... a A universe, if you want to call it that, uh, that is vastly different from the one that we uh, encounter day in and day out. Um, So I think that's why Christmas as a a whole thing that envelops and becomes immersive now uh, for two or three weeks or a month or two months now and where the whole world sort of changes and has a different look to it. And we feel better in that. I remember when the Olympics came to LA and uh, John Gerdy who designed it said, it's going to be like a flower that blooms for two weeks and then fades and, and goes away. And uh, if ever c- an architectural thing could be exactly as he described it, I think that was. But the neat thing about the theme parks, it took something that was a phenomena that grew out of Hollywood, the back lot, that uh, people like Walt were familiar with, and all the people that worked with, with the early Disneyland, uh, they built these sets And I I was watching a new issue of the movie showboat that came out and MGM had a a great thing at the end of all their big movies. It said the end and MGM production filmed in Hollywood USA. And I think the reason, you know, California became overrun with, you know, uh, population is that everyone would look like something like that with the Mississippi river and all these wonderful places. So I really was playing around with the showboat and then thinking about, I'm going to watch this movie. And I've got some still frames now of like the boat, some island rafts like Tom Sawyer, the little village that's right where Rainbow Ridge is in Disneyland and the island across the way that is about shown about two or three times in that movie. That was 1951. And I think Walt Disney. They were all friends, all the studios. So I'm sure they probably said, you you got to come over here. We've got a steamboat running down the Mississippi River, and and, uh, we've built all this. And it's so obvious that Walt looked at that and thought probably, you know, we could build a real place like this, not just something where we put the camera out there and film it for a day, and then it lives forever more on celluloid. But what if we built the Mississippi River, not in Culver City, but in Anaheim, you know, and I think – there was confidence in what was done temporarily on the back lots that um gave them the ability to think we take the same craftspeople and instead of making it out of staff, which is why we still to this day call our shops at Disney the staff shop. Uh it was a material made out of really crummy plaster and, and hay that would disintegrate in like six months. <laughs> And uh, we'll, we won't use that. We'll use fine bu- building materials, but we'll make it look exactly the same way. So when you look at something like Galaxy's Edge, you're looking at something that is done essentially the same way as those films back in the 30s and the 40s were done, but it will last essentially for as long as we keep it up, it's going to stay there. So I think it was born out of that, that here is this thing that we let people enjoy as a themed environment on film, why, when everybody walks over through the studio and they see the boat coming down the river, uh, you go, "Why can't people come to see this?" I had that experience when they filmed the movie Hello Dolly, which is like Main Street, gigantic, mm-hmm. and uh, they were casting everybody in the theater departments in all, all of LA because they they hired all the extras that were available to be in it, and the unions allow them to go to schools. So I went, well, what the heck? You get to go on the the 20th Century Fox backlog. And there was this street and the Harmonia Gardens restaurant and the train going down the track up on this elevated railway. And it was every bit of it looked as beautiful as Main Street at Disneyland. I said, this is truly amazing. This needs to be saved. This needs to be a place that you can come to. So I'm sure that go back 20 years before I was doing that as a young uh, student, And Walt Disney was engaged in that environment of Hollywood. And it's not that far of a leap to figure, how do we take this out of a one-time-only use and bring it into a place where people can enjoy it for as long as uh, we want to keep it around? And, And then it's a matter of thinking, what are the themes of this themed entertainment that are really attractive to people? And for Walt Disney, I think we always think of our childhood being the most precious and wonderful thing. So Walt Disney was a child at the time of Main Street, and so all the movies like Hello Dolly and things were made by people like Gene Kelly that were, you know, uh, peers of Walt Disney at that time, and reflect their love affair of their childhood. So there's a lot of that. You see George Lucas building or doing American Graffiti that reflected his childhood, uh, you know, in Modesto. So I think we're all bring kind of our baggage along of places that we love. That are nostalgic to us as uh, whatever time frame we were built into, and then there's the evergreens that are just fascinating for people. Uh, and then once in a while, you get to do something that's off the deep end, like a journey into imagination, that's a themed entertainment for a place that doesn't exist. You know, mm-hmm. and I think in a way, those are the most challenging. And if they work, and I'm not talking about the ride that's there now, I'm talking about the ride that we built in 1982, um, if they work really well, then that's the most pleasing because it was the hardest. You you don't have a a book you can go to and look at great architecture or anything like that.
0: And Jason, you referred to theme entertainment as the art of reassurance. And what do you mean by that? Uh, Tony touched on it a little bit
4: uh and I think you see it uh, in in many of the parks that are now decades and decades old and uh there there is something inherently reassuring about being able to return to a place again and again and again that provides that escape and that comfort and that's inherently reassuring. And uh you know uh, years ago there was that architectural exhibit called The Architecture of mm-hmm. Reassurance and my talk today was called The Art of Reassurance because it's something that I very much believe in in terms of what themed entertainment does. And you know to Tony's point what what Walt wanted to do with Disneyland was allow his audience the chance to step into the movie and not passively observe it but mm-hmm. live it. And that really gave birth to the entire industry that we know today. I mean, I see it at work every day when kids and adults alike in heavy woolen robes, you know, step into yeah. Diagon Alley and, and their eyes well up with tears. It's because we're offering them as an industry that the chance to escape from their everyday lives and really live their dreams, their adventures and fantasies in, in ways and places that they can't anywhere else, you know, on the planet. And that's really what I think the industry is all about. And that's what separates a theme park from an amusement park. You know, you can go to a Six Flags, you can go to a Cedar Point and that's great. There's nothing wrong with them, but th- th- you know, they're, you're going to have your iron rides, your flume rides, your, you know, your typical amusement park fair. But if you go to a theme park, you're, you're going to escape to live out a story.
3: I think what he just said about Harry Potter, the generations from 2000 on that passed through that phenomena, uh, it is every bit as strong, if not stronger, than what Walt's uh, generation found for the Main Street that is the entryway to Disneyland. Because if you imagine when Disneyland opened, someone who was 55 years old, like Walt was, walking down that street and reconnecting with a world of America that was gone. Well, these kids, and I've seen them too, as they walk in there, they look into this and they say, I never dreamed that I would ever, ever be able to experience this place, you know, this really, really here.
0: Well, that's interesting because you would think that for people that never lived in that era,
3: it would be, Something that wouldn't resonate with them, and yet it still does. It does for various reasons, because I think there's a nostalgia now for Main Street 1955 mm-hmm. that is kind of grafted onto all of us, that if we went there when we were, in my case, six, okay, uh, there's never not been that, and there's a comfort in returning back to it, as you just said, of walking in there and knowing that this wonderful experience that I've, it's always been there for me when I go through that archway. Um, you know, so it, it has a, not the reality of it being 1900. That is irrelevant to me. It has a relevance to being 1955. And
4: it's established its yeah. own relevance. Yeah. It, it, it yeah. transcended its origins mm-hmm. to become a thing unto itself. Because I know I feel that way when I, when I go into a park and I, I see that same long shot. And that feeling I get, and again, this is why I keep coming back to it, it's inherently
3: reassuring. There, you know, the other thing that both Potter and Main Street have is a richness in every detail of what you see that isn't common to what we live in today. So I think that, and again, when I went through the Hello Dolly sets at, at uh, uh, Fox, um, to walk amongst that and say, we don't have this in the real world. We do not get to experience this. And so there's a joy in that of... Uh, it probably exceeds, it, it, it certainly exceeds the price that it costs to get you in because everybody is willing to pay that price to have that euphoric uh, relationship with a themed experience. So, and, and did the tune go through your head as you walked down those sets? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, we put it on, it, it actually, the Hello Dolly score is on Main Street at Disneyland yes. mm-hmm. because, you know, I said, we, we shouldn't limit just to the Victorian tunes from Disney. Anything that's out there that gives you that send back to the nostalgia for what you're trying to uh, create. And there's nothing better than put on your Sunday clothes, uh, to walk down main street and, and feel like you're a part of not just that movie, but there's a million like, uh, Easter parade, a lot of films that, uh, the showboat itself walking through Disneyland. I always thought we could film showboat at Disneyland. Um, it's you know it's a thing that's kind of evolved out of Hollywood, and there's no, uh, what would I call it? It's not a happenstance that Universal and Disney are the two companies that are at the lead of doing this because they had the strong background in, in bringing it to another media first and now into real life.
0: Now, you started out at Disneyland as an ice cream scooper. Mm-hmm. So what was Walt's
3: favorite flavor?
2: Oh.
3: Well, he never... He never came through to eat. I believe ice cream. it was Scotch. Yeah, right. <laughs> See, that's why I had him on the show today. I, I can be dead as a door, uh, you know, deadly doll. and uh, he made a lot of. Also, fun.
0: Walt didn't come in. For oh yeah, life.
3: he came in, uh, and we would. I remember they would say, "You've got to keep all the windows open. Don't go on breaks or anything, until he's cleared." And it kind of bothered me that he should know that we don't have enough people to normally open all the windows and all that. And, uh, but then when he came around and he was very pleasant, he, uh, you know, three or four times you'd feel a tap on the back of your shoulder and he'd say, how are you all doing today? And then he'd keep on a pace so you never had any time to, oh, Mr., D. you know, that mm-hmm. was not in the cards, but, that day I decided, uh, when he came through Carnation, that I was going to tell him that they don't hire enough people to keep the windows open. Uh-huh. And, of course, when he came around, and I was scooping, and he said, well, how's everything going here today? And I go, just fine. You know, like that was about all the... <laughs> that was it you know and I go there it was my chance and I blew it you know so. and it's funny thing is Walt would have been upset if he had heard things were being staged oh, yeah. for but him but you'd have been fired if they yeah. knew that you said that <laughs> yeah. you know, so. yeah.
4: well Michael Eisner would very famously when he would come down here and, and tour the parks he would do the the staged walk but then he had the smarts to go back afterwards and say, okay, now I want to go by myself with one other person and see what's really going Mm -hmm. on. You know, cause they know that it's all, you know, set up for that.
3: that No, I remember when we were finishing up Disneyland Paris, the Jeffrey Katzenberg called me and said, could you meet me at the park tonight in Paris at midnight? And I go at midnight and he goes, yeah, I want to walk just with you and, and hear what your comments are about it. And this was right after beauty and the beast was, um, you know, coming into the theaters, and the, Jeffrey was a very proud person, and I like him a lot. But he said, and it's sort of a compliment. He goes, "Well, you know, there's three things that I can tell you Walt would have been pleased with: Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Disneyland Paris." <laughs> <You know? laughs> what so, a compliment! Yeah, it was. Yeah. So, and he was right. I think he was right. I I felt those two films when they came out were right up there with our original. uh, motion pictures. It was such a euphoric time to realize we were now back and doing not Walt Disney productions, but doing Walt Disney. You know, mm-hmm. it was definitely the came back. And we were, we had our witty
0: banter before this segment. Um, and we were talking about Disneyland Paris and how I, I believe it's one of the most beautiful, it's the most beautiful park of the Disney theme parks. But I also talked about, there's a, there's a spirit that, Disneyland has that it's an, this, this is, it's an intangible spirit that not all the other parts have. Know if it's the spirit of Walt, if it's the intimacy. Mm-hmm. And when you were designing Disneyland Paris, how much was that feeling? I'm carrying on Walt's legacy and vision a part of what you created, because you you, you clearly made, you made some differences in that park. You just didn't do a carbon copy like Tokyo Disneyland. So how much went into that? And how much of that was sort of hanging over your head?
3: Oh, well, it was huge. And Tom, I think, is floating around here. He had Fantasyland. We had five people, one on each land, who had grown up with Disneyland. And Tom was here on opening day as a 12-year-old who saved his paper route money to fly down alone on the plane and have to fly back that night to California.
0: Yeah, Yeah, we're
3: talking about um, Tom Nabby. No, Morris. Morris.
0: Oh, Morris. I'm sorry. He's he's right back there. You can see him. He's waving. Oh, sorry. Waving at every There he is.
3: Anyway, uh, those are the kind of people that were on that crew. They were people that had the DNA of Disneyland in their blood. And Eddie Sato, who, could, who grew up on, we, he was a gen, uh, 10 years younger than me, but we found out we both were absolutely fascinated with Hello, Dolly, so we put Eddie on Main Street. I said, he has such a phenomenal understanding of what John DeCure created in the movie Hello, Dolly, that we can give him this new Main Street, and it's going to be the most beautiful Main Street, and it is, that we ever did. And Tom's Castle had to stand up against all of the castles in Europe, not in a competing way, but in a complementary way, and it does and so the the thing that came through from Disneyland specifically being more charming uh, is that it was built before and by people that didn 't know how to do theme parks. Mm-hmm. Every other theme park has been done by people that know this as a product, and we know how to do it, and we know what capacity is um, and all the things that guide you into making widths of walkways and and queues and and flowing in and out of vehicles and stuff. That's all a science now. It wasn't when they built Disneyland. And so you get things in there that are charming, that are naive, that are the things that make it very special. So our talent challenge on doing Paris was how do we make it accommodate a large crowd like today but do it in a way that looks like Disneyland rather than accommodating. So it means – two 20-foot walkways instead of one 40-foot wide walkway. Mm-hmm. It means arcades on the back of Main Street instead of covering it like they did in Tokyo, which makes it so you can, in the snow, you can walk on Main Street. But in Paris, they love the sunshine when they get it, which is very seldom. And to cover it would have uh, been against the kind of the culture of the people that are, that live there. Mm-hmm. And so the arcades do the same thing, but they're only used really when they need it rather than having the beauty of the sunshine and the playfulness of the architecture um you know so we went through the whole park in finding ways to reinvest the disneyland aesthetic but with the demands of a industrialized project like a theme park but so i I ended up saying here's how we're going to distinguish the three types of parks disneyland is charming walt disney world is spectacular Mm -hmm. And Paris is beautiful. So, mm-hmm. and I think they, they, they do work that way.
0: Absolutely. Now, Jason, at Universal, Universal Creative, you have a burden of Universal has created some blockbuster films that are series and series of films that that your guests are very heavily invested in. They go in with preconceived notions of these attractions because they're because of the love they have for the Jurassic Park and Jurassic World which is the Harry Potter series. What is that like to meet expectations of guests to create attractions based around these beloved franchises.
4: It's interesting because that's, that's something that we actually take very seriously because, uh, you know, in our business, uh, we are largely a business of adaptation now where, where we're taking a beloved property, whether it's a film, a book, uh, and translating it into a livable experience you know like we were talking about earlier and that is something that that weighs heavily on you because you don't want to be the one to drop the ball on that and you know using harry potter as an example that was a really interesting one because obviously the the books stand on their own as an absolute beloved classic and yet it's the only thing i can think of where the the books and the films that were adapted from them are so heavily intertwined that we were almost compelled to realize the world, the wizarding world of Harry Potter as, as it's seen in the films in our parks, because there was that strong a connection between audience mm-hmm. and, and the source material. And, you know, we, we partner with, uh, with Warner brothers, the studio that, uh, released the films and, and JK Rowling herself. And, uh, you know, the, the, it's, it's, uh, an incredible, honor and responsibility to, to create those environments for real so that people can actually interact and live out the fantasies that they've had in many cases since they were a little kid, you know, reading the books. And then um, I just worked on uh, universal studios, Beijing, which is currently in soft opening. And uh, one of my pride and joys from that project is Jurassic world adventure. And it was the same thing. It's like, we want to put people in that film and, and create that same sense of fear and excitement. You know, we have a moment where the Indominus Rex chases the ride vehicle for 10 seconds. That's a long time when you're being pursued by a giant dinosaur, but it all came out of a a meeting one day when we're all like, I want to be Jeff Goldblum in the back of that Jeep going, must go faster. You know, now you can experience that. And when you're dealing with properties that are beloved, which is certainly the case at Universal and it's the case at Disney, uh, it, it's something that that a lot of us as storytellers take very seriously because you're following in the footsteps of giants in, in many cases. J.K. Rowling, Steven Spielberg, Walt Disney, George Lucas – uh And it's it's really an honor and a privilege to get to play in that sandbox. And 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 I, like Tony, had have, have had the privilege of, of working with some pretty beloved properties and characters. And to me, that's a big part of the fun of what I do. You know, because sometimes it's like, well, what about original storytelling? You wouldn't you want to come up with an original storyline for a ride? And it's like my answer to that has always been yes, ish, because there ish. It, it almost can't compare like it, it to, to what I get to do, you know, working with dinosaurs and transformers and, and, and Harry Potter. It's, it, it's, it's an honor, you know, and it's something we all take very seriously.
0: So since you create these experiences, when you visit the parks, it's very different from when we visit the parks, can you just go in and say, I'm just going to enjoy today. Or are you looking at everything with like a critical eye, a storyteller's eyes, an engineer's eyes, a designer's eye? I, I find for myself, I look at my own stuff more
4: critically. Um One of the greatest things to happen to me as a Disney fan was to go work for Universal because now I can go to Disneyland or Walt Disney World and just enjoy it as a guest, especially as someone who had kids later in life, just to have that you know, I don't think about how the sausage is made anymore. I'm just going and enjoying it with with my kids. Um, but I do think as artists, we tend to be more critical of our own work. But I, I at the same time, once you... Establish yourself in an industry like this. You also can't not think about it like, Oh, they should have made that walkway wider, you know, or Oh, this was built full scale and it would have been more, you charming. know, charming if they'd done it with forced perspective. I think, you know, to your point about Disneyland, I think one of the reasons it's retained its charm is because everything is forced perspective and almost feels like you're walking into an oversized toy as opposed to a place you would find in the so called real world. And I think that contributes to the illusion.
3: <laughs> Unless Tony disagrees, no. You said <laughs> no. <laughs> it all. I'm trying to think what else is. No, well, I no,
4: because I think you've brought it up. Like, is the difference yeah. between Disneyland and Magic Kingdom? Magic the, Kingdom is
3: bigger. Yes, it's it spectacular, and Disneyland's charming. But you know, the I think I remember Claude Coates, who was a great uh, background artist, and and did the Pirate uh City and created the Twenty Thousand Leagues ride and all this stuff. And I said. But what, what do you, I asked the same question. What do you think? He goes, well, I have a problem with it because I always go on the rides and I see. Things that they're not maintaining at the level that I left it when, when we opened or whatever. They've modified things to get more people through or whatever they might have done. And and so he was caught up in that. I, I think what you said about switching from Disney to Universal, I have thoroughly enjoyed going through Harry Potter and all that because uh, I don't have the baggage of like, what, oh, look up there, you can see the where the screen ends or whatever and all this stuff. Uh, whereas I, you know, when you when you're in a building that you saw under work lights for a year, and then they turn the lights out and it's a show, you go, oh well, there's still the thing, and because you you know where it all is. But when you come into experiences that you've never seen before, um, I, and we've all had that when we first went on the Peter Pan ride, and the building, at, at least at Disneyland, is hardly any different size-wise than a house mm-hmm. that you live in. It's so it's all done. Again, with amazing force perspective and things. And when I was six and I came home and I was trying to describe it to my grandmother, what I had seen in there, I mean, there was no way in my brain was the size of a footprint of a normal house. It was, you know, we went on this journey and we went to Neverland and we fell. Down at the island when they shot at us and all this, I didn't know about mechanical tracks and the ceiling and all the the stuff that tends to, but it it is fun to explore places you've not, you know, had anything to do with. And so when I came down here for Pandora, I had not any information. I kind of knew in the back of my mind uh, what they were going to do, but it was all brand new to me. So going through the queue that seemed like it was never going to be over, there was just more and more and more and more. And it was all really neat, you know, and to see. And you go, how did they, you know, I don't know how they even afford it to put all that in. But that was fun for me because I'd been out of the loop on that one, so.
4: And sometimes even when you know how something is done, I keep thinking back to the nineties when I was directing the Bill and Ted show for Halloween Horror Nights, the the arena that it took place in was right next to Jaws and our rehearsals were always late at night. So around midnight, you know, we took a break and we're all like, Oh, we're going to go next door and watch them bring the sharks out of the water. (laughs) So, so like a bunch of nerds, we would go over and we would go into the boathouse And as these mechanical sharks would get raised out of the water and I would literally shrink back from the water and press myself up against the wall, not even knowing I was doing it. And my friends would look at me and go, what what are you doing? I'm like, and I'm like, I'm scared. And they're like, it's a mechanical fiberglass shark. What's the matter with you? But the imagery was so powerful, you know, and even when I would ride that ride as an adult going into that boathouse, I hated being on the right hand side when the shark came out of the water because in that moment, I was a kid again who was terrified by that movie. Again, it's a testament to the power of of some of these storytellers, these filmmakers, the, this imagery, these uh, moments that we bring to life for people. And 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 you can create it for real. I mean, I'm I'm more scared of that mechanical shark than if I went into the ocean and, and encountered a real one, <laughs> which I would
3: rather not do. Yeah. Let's make that clear. I think Walt was aware of the dichotomy between what we see on stage when we go as a guest and then the enjoyment and curiosity that people have for behind the scenes. Because the programs on his show that literally riveted me where it showed you how the Tiki Room was made or that hand that was laying on a table. That you, it's probably all burned into your mind where there was a hand with wires coming out of it and it was all going like this. That stuff just fascinated me. And you'd think, well, he's kind of, Showing the, the backside of it, you know, but I think he realized that that would make even more fascination. One of our things we do in California for, I think it's Adventures by Disney, um, when they go behind the scenes at Disneyland, which gives them a reason to take our tours rather than other competing Southern California tours. Uh, they go into the Indiana Jones ride and they're all given a chance to program the ride vehicle that makes it buck and, 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 uh, that I think is one of the elements of that whole tour that people tell me is just, oh, we got to go back there and we, they let us move all the levers and make the thing react. So, yes, there's an excitement to being in the ride and wondering, that this is all really happening to me and it's very effective at conveying that when you're on the ride but then there's also a joy about wow it's like getting to see how the magic was made so we're always kind of you know going should we or shouldn't we but i think there's a joy and entertainment value in both sides of it
0: we've talked on connecting this well how you know walt made infomercials before anybody knew what they were.
3: Yeah. I mean, who
0: else and won could have them? won an <laughs> Emmy award for a television yeah. show that did nothing but promote his movie 20,000 yeah. Leagues Under yeah. the Sea?
3: Yeah. I mean, it was amazing. And the name Disneyland, which is a TV show, and a year before Disneyland with a four uh, a, a, a venues for uh, shows on it, of Tomorrowland and Adventureland, uh-huh. that put into every six-year-old's brain the architectural logic of Disneyland And what one could expect to find. And it was drummed in every Wednesday night when the show debuted. And I, when I, when we got there finally a year later, I knew where to run. I knew where it all was. You know, I knew because it was just part of my, uh, you know, education. It was probably the most important part of my education was that one hour Disneyland show.
0: Now, before our segment, we were talking about, um, Epcot and, Journey into Imagination. And we... The interesting thing about the Journey into Imagination Pavilion is that we... um, It's the only one not grounded in reality Mm -hmm. out of all the pavilions. So how did that come about?
3: It's no longer grounded in entertainment either. No.
2: Um.
3: Well... It was actually Kodak that came to mm-hmm. us, and uh, we were trying to, we had a, a, a sales room in New York City to sell the Epcot pavilions, mm-hmm. and they had come through, and they said, well, we don't really see anything that matches us, and I remember that they were brought out to California, and and they said, get the Seas pavilion, and get, um I forget which other one, it might have been energy, and ready so they can see it, or horizons, maybe it was horizons. And they said, well, this, we do not see ourselves in that way. We see ourselves as a company that allows people to express their imagination. And we, through our cameras, allow everyone to be an artist. Uh, and so isn't there something about that, that? And the more we got into it, we realized that nothing, whether it's uh, the world of science and technology or it's the arts or the skills of you know maintaining the land or the seas, it all requires human imagination before you can get to that. And I remember we had a silly thing where we said, the process you do to make a birthday cake for your child is the same as making an atomic bomb in terms of gathering the input like you all are doing and then storing it some way like he's doing with this camera and, uh, and then recombining what you learned here into something new. If you, if you got something out of this that sparked an idea for you, so gather, combine and uh, gather store, gather, store and recombine became the Genesis. And then the Shermans came on board to write one little spark out of, we fed them that message and, uh, they came back with um, a, a beautiful song that's uh, an earworm, as they call it, uh, and, uh, and and it just sort of fed on it. And it's funny when you invent characters like Figment and Dreamfinder, you start to understand what they would or not do. And I remember we sit in meetings and, and someone say, "Well, Figment could be," and you go, "No, Figment can't do that. Figment wouldn't do that. He's a four-year-old. He has a tension span of like two minutes." And he's got to be on to the next thing and doing this and doing that. Oh, okay. And then DreamFinder gave a counterpart to that, where he's learned, a scholar, a Santa Claus, if you will. And so the more you developed it, the more you understood your characters. Because uh, we were saying in the last session that when you come away from a film or something that changes your life, a attraction, it's not so much the events along the journey as it is the characters that guided you through. And so when we think of the Wizard of Oz, there's a lot of places they went in that movie, but we think of Dorothy and we think of the Tin Man and the Scarecrow. And, um, that's, you know, so I think the reason Figment and Dreamfinder even and Dreamfinder has not been around for a long time, they still live in so many of your memories because of what an impression they made on you emotionally. When okay can offended.
2: i can i ask oh, absolutely as the, as the i am going to defer to you <laughs> we knew this would happen yes Uh-oh. i brought it up. I can't have you sitting at the table i am like the ultimate figment absolutely. fan um <laughs> it it captured me at disney like no other character ever has but and it and it's you know we we know it's not as good as the original mm-hmm. it's better than the second In my world, it's like it's better than nothing. But but we don't
3: settle for that.
2: Well, no, 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 no. I'm just I'm just glad it's there because I would hate. I'm just
4: relieved I don't work at Disney anymore because (laughs) this would be a problem.
2: You know, I just I I I love the ride. My um, granddaughter was afraid to ride it, and you know, we got to bond. Got to show her. I have figment footprints up on my wall. And uh-huh. when my grandkids come, I move the, the feet around. So figment lives at my house. Not that I'm geeky or anything. But <laughs> now it's, we it's,
0: know where he went. <laughs> yes.
2: But is there any chance that they're ever going to give him a better story or a better... I, I think
3: there is. And it's really... A testament to all of you that have kept him alive—that he's part of the art uh, at Epcot program. He's part of the wine and, and wine festival and food festivals and all that. That it's clearly recognized that he's a mascot that is, in in some ways, stronger at Epcot than Mickey, uh, because he represents the important first step in in moving into the future or going into world cultures and all that. He is kind of a bond about that that it it isn't mickey's territory mickey is the guy next door uh that your neighbor um but figment is this impish little character that what's next where are we going next what's going to be the new surprise around the corner and i think that it's weird how when we didn't have a name for it it was just the dragon and you've all heard my story about watching my magnum pi and there was a, a goat in their garden and um the old butler was mad because all the, you know, the, the plants were being torn up. And Magnum says, oh, oh, Higgins, it's just a figment of your imagination. And then Higgins, in his scornful way, said, figments don't eat grass. And I remember, well, what do they eat? You know, what do they eat? <laughs> and I suddenly went, everyone in the world knows this word, everybody that speaks English anyway. And we all use it to describe, oh, it's just a, something weird and strange and odd and different, but we've never seen it. And so that I could hardly wait to get to work that day. I grabbed the model. And I said, "Meet Figment. This is." Who. And when everyone heard that name, when looking at it, you know, they said, "How do we not think of it?" You know, and I wouldn't have thought of it. I just was watching TV. And now the interesting thing is when you go to your phones and you type in Figment and then go to Images, Google Images, every single image that will come up. You can scroll and scroll as figment, and you go. That's mental real estate that was free. You know, it was it was a word that was there. It was free, and we just said, okay, that's that's the word, and this is what that looks like. Connected them, and now it's made a mental uh, image out of something that had no image. It was ripe for giving it this visual visualization because now we know what it looks like. And it's a thing and it's precious and it's care. It's something we care about. So, uh, it was one of those fortunate things. And when I do lectures at colleges, I talk to them that there's, there's no limit to the available mental real estate that hasn't been claimed. That's for free. It's all out there. And it's just having either the opportune moment where two things collide, a need and an opportunity. And you've created something that's not physical. You know, uh, real estate and the way we think about land, but it's mental real estate that connects uh, something together that becomes, um, and and we do it all the time in words like space mountain. What is that? A space and a mountain. But you put them together, and all of you in your mind see a picture right now that's Mm -hmm. very distinct. So, you know, um, we can all be masters of that and find these Wonderful opportunities that are available. <laughs> Meanwhile, Tom
0: Selleck's consulting a copyright lawyer.
2: Or like <laughs> right. Bless uh, his heart.
0: Now. Now, I know you are the creative consultant on the re-theming of Splash Mountain. I just want to put a little, little thought in your head. If you want to see Disneylanders go crazy, you have to have a scene with the country bears singing in
3: the bayou. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, people have to go on our Winnie the Pooh ride out there to see country bears singing. <laughs> and those of you that know the little, you know, hidden gag in the pooh ride in California. Uh, now just, that was a terrible uh, thing, by the way. And I, I need to give, get myself off the hook here. Oh, sure. We were told, you know, like you did here, take out the toad ride and put in Winnie the Pooh. And I said, if I take out the toad ride at Disneyland, which was better than the one here, then there will be no toad rides anywhere in the entire Disney universe. Whereas if we go somewhere else and we've gotten Critter Country going with Splash, and so it's got little characters of animals that come to life and talk and i thought well the Pooh characters are close to that i said if we could do that there'll still be a bear band here and we'll still have a toad ride there and so many of you go to all the parks um that i think there's a pleasure in knowing that mystery manor will be there if you go to tokyo or hong kong and the wonderful winnie the pooh ride that's in mm-hmm. in tokyo disneyland and there's a, a charm about, and then I can come here and see Country Bear Jamboree. They're a, a, a real importance to being able to go to the different parks and seeing different things. So I defend myself on that. But boy, you talk about angry people of getting rid of Country Bear and, uh, and keeping, uh, the, the, the little toad ride. But, um, the toad ride was done by my mentor, Claude Coates. And I don't know how well to approved that the ending of the ride would have you committing all these uh, atrocities, driving helter skelter through London, and for that you go to hell. Uh, you know, but that was what was there. And I said it is so outrageously audacious that it's got to stay. It's got to be a part of Disneyland. So. And it's interesting
0: because the other um, dark ride attractions. sort of a basic retelling of the story. Mr. Toad was the one that took you on a completely different adventure with the same character. It's
3: you, and see, to me, it's really important with a lot of, especially thrill rides, and I kind of characterize the Toad ride as more thrill than it is exposition, you know, Um, because you're out of control. You're banging through crates, and barrels are falling, and you're arrested, and it's all about you doing these things. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, I am very glad that we kept that because I love the the rides, like it's a small world where you're enjoying a journey through something. But on the other hand, these things that give you a chance to do something you can't do in your normal life. And let's face it, none of us have been to hell yet. So uh, <laughs> at Disneyland, you can do that, you know, you can be run yeah. over by a train and end up, you know. Hey, we didn't come up with it. It was there when I was six years old and it, you know, burned into my mind. I went, wow, what is that? And I got the movie because I'd never seen that movie. You know, it's not a feature film. It's a short. And so, uh, you know, uh, but anyway, I, I admit that I, I saved that. And, you know, it, there's no really great uh, solutions to saying goodbye to something. But we can still do the bare band either here or in Tokyo. And we can still do the, the Walt's original, you know, um, Toad, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride at Disneyland.
0: So. Yeah. And in Tokyo, you can see all three versions.
3: Yes. Of the country. There, yes, that's right. Is nice.
0: And speaking of attractions, Jason, you wrote some of the definitive books on the Disneyland attraction, on Disney attractions. Talk a little about those. What, um, inspired you to write those books? Uh, the main impetus for the books was that I wanted
4: to read them. <laughs> you know and they didn't exist and and I remember it was the summer of 2002 when we knew the Haunted Mansion movie was coming the next year and Pirates as well and I remember sticking my head into the my vice president's office at at Imagineering here in Florida and I said who do we talk to about doing a book and he goes I don't know email Marty you know so I emailed Marty and I said hey I you know we got the Haunted Mansion movie coming out next year I think it would be a good excuse to do uh like a marketing tie in where it's about the making of the movie air quotes, but we're really telling the story of the attraction. He goes, Oh, that's a great idea. Write me a book proposal. And I'm like, great. How do I do that? Yeah. You know, cause I'd never done it before. So I essentially just outlined the book the way I would write a treatment for an attraction. And then he worked with me on it a little bit back and forth. And then he said, okay, now write a proposal letter to the publishing division in New York. And I'm like, great. What does that need to look like? You know, I had no idea. So I essentially just wrote a memo or a, a letter that would be like a pitch that you would do for an attraction, sent that to him. And then next thing I knew, he said, okay, I sent the whole thing to, to Disney Editions in New York. We'll wait and see. And I'm like, Oh, okay. And then about a month later, I got a call from, uh, from Wendy Lefkin, the the head of Disney Editions. And she said, uh, we love it. We want to do it. We're going to take it to our sales and acquisition meeting on Wednesday, you know, to see if the parks will carry it, you know, because they were trying to work out the economic model, because at that time, it was felt like if the parks didn't support it, that there wouldn't be a market for it. So that Wednesday, I was just sitting at home, like waiting with bated breath. And then that night, the the woman who would, would become my editor, Jody Revenson, called and she goes, the good news is uh, we're doing the book. The bad news is to bring it out with the movie, we need the manuscript in January. And this was like, October and I'm like oh I I said you know and I had no idea what it was going to take uh but uh what wound up happening was that was how I spent my Christmas vacation you know so I did all of my my research my interviews went to the archives and Then, uh, as it turned out, I did have a little bit of extra time because the movie didn't even go into principal photography uh, until January. So they sent me out, spent two weeks on set with with the filmmakers, embedded with the movie, and uh, took a a month or two to write that part of it, turned in that manuscript, and uh, it it was done by August. And then the movie came out in in November, so we made it. and it was funny because I pitched Pirates at the same time as Haunted Mansion, and at, and again this is 2002. And my editor was like, no, nah, no, nah, we're not interested." I'm like, "Why?" And she's like, "Because all of our Bruckheimer books go right in the toilet, you know, because they had done Armageddon and uh, Pearl Harbor." And I'm like, "Oh," <laughs> I said, "I well, I think this one." Might might be a little different. Nah, no, no, not interested. <laughs> oh, Pass. Okay. Yes. So then, of course, summer of two thousand three rolls around, and it was right when the movie was passing three hundred million dollars at the box office. I get a phone call going. You know, we're really kind of disappointed that we didn't do a pirates book. And I go, well, that's interesting, because I seem to recall having this very same conversation about a year ago. Uh, and that was how the the pirates book came out. It was just a, a little bit later because uh, they didn't realize, you know, what a what a juggernaut it was going to become. And then the mountains followed that, and instead of being uh, one single attraction, you know, we just tackled the mountains as a whole. And Tony actually provided uh, the the afterword for for that book uh, because of Big Thunder Mountain and Splash Mountain and his contributions to the Disney Mountain Range. Yeah, <laughs> but
0: it is all because I wanted to read them, and, and, and they didn't exist. Well, I think we would all like to see them updated and reissued. <laughs>
4: Well, I think you should address your emails and letters to Wendy Lefkin in New York.
2: There you go.
3: I, I would at down.
4: least love to see them as, as e books, only yeah. because I get questions all, all the yeah. time in terms yeah. of, you know, I, I don't want to pay $300 on eBay, which is <laughs> absurd, by the way. Um, but yeah, I, I would love to see them yeah. back too. Mansion's still out there.
0: Now, now you are um, all storytellers, both of you storytellers. And Walt Disney said he wanted to be remembered as a storyteller. So now, when we go into your parks and we see what you have created, and, and when our listeners hear you talk, read your books, how now that we know what we know, how do you want us to regard you? <laughs>
3: Go ahead. Well,
4: you're the legend, not me. Yeah, but you want the words. I'm some schmuck from Cleveland who got lucky. No, I I, honestly, uh, the there is. This is going to sound so pretentious, but it's like I relate it to a line. uh, Well, it was Walt Whitman, but for me, it was Dead Poet Society. But you know, the the powerful play goes on, and and you may contribute a verse or however it is. That is honestly how I've looked at, at my career. Is, I uh, just being incredibly fortunate that, you know, and I've spent my career working for the two giants in the industry, you know, Disney and Universal, and I've had amazing experiences at both. Um, and, and just to, to have had an opportunity to work with some of the characters that I've worked with. Not people like Tony. I'm talking about like, you know, the dinosaurs <laughs> and so forth. But, uh, you know, just uh, being a steward of, of, of some of those characters and stories. And then it, it really occurred to me, Uh, In the past couple of years, uh, you know, again, I mentioned having kids a lot later in life. So we would take them to Universal, for example, and they would go see the Day in the Park with Barney show, which I wrote when I was 24. So you have to picture what it was like. And this gets back to reassurance and returning to things that have endured for decades in some cases. And it was really mind blowing to sit watching the Barney show. And one moment I'm literally having a flashback to when I, uh, I would literally remember writing a certain line of dialogue or deciding this song would go well here. And then in the next moment, I'm looking down at my kids singing and dancing and clapping along to the show. And that was absolutely surreal. And that's what we get, what we're privileged to do. We're, we're able to somehow contribute to making those moments for people. That, that they'll literally remember forever. So getting to contribute a verse is, is, is what I, I would hope I'd be remembered for, if anything. And, and being a good husband and father, since my wife is there. <laughs> that is, I don't know. I would, That's I would. first.
3: Then the, then the crap about the powerful play. <laughs> and then. When we were talking about figment, and I think back to, you know, that moment sitting on the couch watching the TV and the word figment popped up on the screen. And I, I brought it in, and I electrified a whole group of people because I carried that word from my television set to uh, there. And so much of it is like that. It's like John Williams is regarded as one of the greatest composers of all time, Harry Potter and, was it Jurassic? Jurassic. Den- and as well as Superman, Jaws. Jaws, and gosh, everything that we have grown up with in the last 30 years. And, uh, but he doesn't do it alone. I mean, if the images weren't there on the screen to inspire him and the orchestra didn't have 80 people in there that each do uh, something that he can't do playing each of these instruments, he knows how I can bring that sound together with this sound. I think that's where I, what I found myself falling into as I stopped drawing uh, and, and painting and building models, I realized that my role is one of bringing the right people together uh, so that I could step back and know that Tom Morris and, and Eddie Sato and Tim Delaney, they're going to do such a great job that I can uh, focus on things that are not, uh, you know, going to use up all my time trying to th- you know, solve these problems. And so it means finding like an orchestra of 80 people that you know they come into a room and then john stands up there and then they all play this how does that happen that's you know i don't know how that it's not anything i understand that they don't know one another they've come from whatever houses they just open their instruments and they all start playing beautiful uh, material and so i think what we do is we're uh, we're all involved in that and you kind of see the end of it and some of our names become more known than others, but it couldn't possibly happen if you didn't build these incredible linkages with all the opportunities of meeting people and, and bringing them in. And I, I was talking about Michelle Denduke who did the frozen ride down here. I found him at a theme park in Holland, which is spectacular. And, um, and Michelle is now working with us and to watch him, You know, come from under my wings when we started on the Fantasy Fair, and now he's out doing projects all around the world for Disney, and there's just an excitement in that. In that, uh, you know, Walt Disney did the same for me, and I I never met him on a professional basis, but on TV he shared with me all these things that became the rules that I uh, uh, took under my uh, wings, and then all of his disciples that were there when I got there. Tutored me and going forward. So I think that we're all in a continu- continuum, you know, that um, offers uh, endless possibilities and depends on a, a corporate artistic whole and not an individual thing. It's literally something that comes out of a, a big conglomerate, <laughs> you know, that is. Uh, the way art has always been, pretty much, has been a commodity, whether it was for religion in the early times or in commercial enterprise now. But personal art is something very different than the communal art that um, we we dwell with. It has right. to work for everybody, and therefore it has to be created by uh, a grand group.
0: Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time and and sharing you know your your answers your expertise with us and on behalf of our Disunplug family I would like to thank you for your work in continuing um Walton Roy's legacy and for creating magical moments and memories for us and also giving us those sparks of imagination through your work that for us to incorporate into our lives so, ladies and gentlemen, Tony Baxter and and um, Jason Sorrell. thank you so much. All right. Thank you very much. Okay, Craig, that was—I still get goosebumps when I think about
1: that interview. Yeah, and I mean, it was huge. It was—it was one of those things where, even up to the minute of it happening. I feel like we weren't sure if it was actually going to happen because I mean, you were sitting down with uh Denny and Kathy and I I know I was there and Rhino was on the controls with me and we all just weren't really sure what was happening and if the if the whole interview was even going to happen at all. And then it did and it was it, it was spectacular. It was an enthralling uh 50 minutes ish uh i think is how how long it actually ran it was just it was it was perfect it was real special oh thank you
0: well and what was funny about it is we thought we were going to interview tony just for this show and it would only be like a 10 15 minute interview so i had a few questions prepared it ended up i didn't use the questions At all. (laughs) And I had them all out in front of me, but I don't know what happened. It was just, I just sort of got the talking and they got the talking and I just used a whole different set of questions. Plus I had just come off of his panel of it that was an hour long of him talking about his whole career. And then a lot of people from that panel then came back into the room where we were doing the marathon show. So I thought, well, I don't want to ask him about, Yeah, you know, I don't want to ask him questions that was just all on the material that a lot of people in this room just heard. Uh-huh. So I wanted to make it unique. And so I I don't quite know where I found all the questions in my head, but I did. But what was funny is, you know, I had sat through a big part of the marathon show, and I didn't attend panels here and there. But I knew most of the segments are 15 minutes, 20 minutes. So that's sort of how long I thought I had. And then either his handlers would give me a signal, or Pete, who was taking a quick break, would come back. And give me a high sign. And so I'm sitting there, and you know, it's 15 minutes, it's 20 minutes, and Pete's not there, Mm -hmm. and there's no handlers. And I, and after a while, I just sort of kept
1: looking at you, Craig. (laughs) And (laughs) I had nothing because it was one of those things (laughs) where I felt like every time, like you were running through a topic with Tony, and when you started to lose steam with Tony, it was like, it, it was almost like him and Jason have been doing this as like a, a Vegas act for a while because Jason knew how to step in. Then as soon as like mm-hmm. Tony was kind of like reaching his, I don't want to say bottom of the barrel at no point in time during the interview was he ever reaching for answers or, or things to say, but it was like, it, it was just like Jason was the to is Yang. And, so he just was able to jump in and reinvigorate the conversation. And so it just kept going and going yeah. and
0: going. And then if one, well, and if one of them dominated, then I would throw a question to the other mm-hmm. to bring the other one in and all that. But then I just, kept, and then it, it was like, then it was like 30 minutes and I'm thinking, nobody's telling me to stop and Pete's not there. And I saw the other members of the team were there. They were listening to the interview and then and i'm waiting and waiting and finally pete i see pete come in and then i see him leave i thought okay but i figure okay if he's in he's around so then i knew with my final question it's going to take these guys about 10 to 15 minutes to answer it Mm -hmm. just at the rate they were going with with responding so i answered so i threw my last what i knew would be my last question and then um and then Pete came back in and then gave me the sign to wrap up. And so I nodded and, uh, and
1: then it did it wrapped up within, I yeah. would say five, six minutes or so after that. Uh, so that being said, though, I, I just want to point out in case it didn't translate it well through the audio and even video. If you take the time to go back and watch that as well, too, just so you can watch the conversation happen. Uh, I have zero doubt that both Tony and Jason would have sat there for another 30 minutes to an hour just chatting. (laughs) Uh, They genuinely seemed like they were enjoying having the conversation. And, you know, I, I think a lot of it has to do with your interview skills that it's, I mean, you are perfect at making it a natural conversation while still trying to, you know, get something. Get something fresh and different that maybe people haven't heard before. Uh, but it, it it was a mixture of that and just like we were all sitting around having fun, listening and and engaging with with everything that was being told. So I I truly believe they would have just kept going and going and going with <laughs> with that interview if we would have had time to do it. And I I really hope our our paths get to cross with both of them again in the future because they were just. Magnificent.
0: Well, I have Tony's email address and he wrote, he printed it very carefully for me. So we will definitely have him on the show. (laughs) Excellent. So, yeah. But now it's time for us to take a look back at this week in Disney history. Okay. okay, Craig. Well, I'm starting off with a with a Muppet question for you. Oh. So this is for November fourteenth. Which Muppet celebrity received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame on November fourteenth, two
1: thousand and two? Two thousand and two? I'm I, well that doesn't really help in terms of a character, but Well, it's I'm, not easy being green. Oh, okay. I was going to say Kermit because I think it's just the Muppets have a star and I know Kermit has a star. Does Miss Piggy have one too? I think it's just the two. Oh, I'm sure she wouldn't. I'm sure she would not tolerate not having one. She should, but
0: you're right. It's Kermit the Frog. Okay. Okay. Okay, November 15th. A Walt Disney Family Museum exhibition opened to the general public on November 15th, 2012. The exhibition celebrated Walt Disney's vision and the artistry of his dedicated staff, illustrating how they shaped and defined an entirely new American art form through their creation of what groundbreaking film?
1: Okay, I... I feel like there's saying groundbreaking film and everything you described before it. I feel like it's either got to be a silly symphony cartoon or something like snow white right at the, the beginning of animation. Um, I, uh, I'm going to say I'm going to go the opposite of what's, probably right i'm gonna say maybe the old mill
0: no it's actually snow white and the seven dwarfs the okay. creation of a classic and the only reason i bring it up is because it was this exhibition that caused tom bell to invite me on the show the disneyland show to talk about it
1: uh, and that led to my getting hired is that um that,
0: with the Diz?
1: is that what the one they released the book for too or was that just, yeah okay mm-hmm. yep i i can picture that in my head I didn't put it together in the moment, though. But what? I'm so glad you were able to go to that.
0: Yeah, me too. Look <laughs> at that. Look what it started. Yeah. <laughs> okay. November 16th, Walt Disney's 29th animated feature film, The Rescuers Down Under, premiered on November 16th, 1990. What was the animated featurette that premiered with the film?
1: I, uh, do you want me to give you both? Both? Did you say the name of the film in that or did you? I did. It was rescuers down okay. under. Sorry. You cut out for me for a second. Um, I remember this very well. I saw it in Atlanta when I was there, uh, for Thanksgiving time with my relatives. It was again, as you said, rec- rescuers down under and then Prince and the Popper.
0: That's right. That's right. Uh, a variation of Mark Twain's classic 1881 story. So, um, and in this version, Mickey plays two identical mice, one a pauper and the other
1: a prince. I could see the Muppets doing a version of this story. I, I could, I love the Mickey Mouse version, though. Uh, I, I do too. This is probably my earliest theater memory. If I had to take a guess at it, I, my next one would be Hook, but I, I remember seeing Rescuers Down Under in, uh, and Prince and the Popper in theaters. And then I had one of the VHSs that had Prince and the Popper on it. And I watched it so much growing up. I mean, so the Muppets could do a take on it. But the Mickey Mouse version is perfect for me. That's, it, yeah. it will never, nothing will exceed that one.
0: This is noteworthy for me because this was the first film that I took my children to see in a drive-in. Oh, They had never been to a drive-in theater, because most of them were gone. But up here in the Sacramento area, there's one not far from our house. And so I took – that was their first drive-in film, The Rescuers Down Under. And I remember just being blown away by the scene where they're – you know, the flying scene. Yeah. And all of that, and just how beautifully rendered that was. Of course, they were using new um, software and all that for that, which then they abandoned. But and there's a whole story about that that I think in um Oh gosh, what was that do- what's that documentary where that's the uh, um sort of the rise and fall. Uh, Waking sleeping <laughs> of beauty. Waking Sleeping yeah. Beauty, they talk about yeah. this. And I I remember just
1: even in a the drive in theater it was just so gorgeous. Now, I I like Rescuers Down Under more than I like the rescuers. And I think my children do too. i it, but it's again it's just i was 3 years old when it came mm-hmm. out so it was like i it just it was one of those things it left such an impact on me and i i still enjoy it more to this day and plus rescuers down under was just a little bit lighter than than the rescuers was which kind of you know the if you're younger little it's a little scary okay. yeah <laughs> it
0: is absolutely Okay, November seventeenth. The first of Walt's nine old men was born in Ogden, Utah, on November seventeenth, nineteen oh seven. What is his name? You'll know the story. They he worked in the ice cream shop that Walt and Roy would go to, and Walt commented on how well his lettering on the menu signs was.
1: Um, uh, Les Clark. Absolutely.
0: Animator and Disney legend Les Clark. Between 1927 and 1975, he worked on such Disney classics as Steamboat Willie. He was the only one of the Nine Old Men to work on The Origins of Mickey Mouse with Ub Iwerks, who was his mentor. He worked on The Skeleton Dance, Sleeping Beauty, Lady and the Tramp, Peter Pan. But unlike most of the other Nine Old Men, Les began his career with no art Background. He advanced by pure determination and hard work. I mean, you know, things I've read about him is he was always taking art classes, always improving his natural talent, and um, you know, he was named a Disney Legend in 1989. So I, I think he's a great role model for anybody that um, just
1: keep on working at it oh, and yeah. keep on developing your skills in the arts. You know. You have basically two modes. You can either just continue doing the same thing that you know and just keep replicating that over and over again, or you can work in your spare time and practice and just really try to, to build upon that. And mm-hmm. I- if you don't build upon it, it's just it's going to get so stagnant. So uh, a, a truly someone to to idolize in that way in terms of their work ethic and trying to go to the next step with what you're doing.
0: Absolutely. November 18th, the second honorary Oscar ever awarded by the Academy of Motion Picture and Arts and Sciences is given to Walt Disney at the fifth annual Academy Awards held at the Ambassador Hotel on November 18th, 1932. For what accomplishment was Walt given this honor?
1: I'm going to say it it has to be dealing with Mickey Mouse's birthday.
0: Yeah, you're right. It it was for the creation of Mickey Mouse. So it's the only second honorary Oscar, as I mentioned, ever awarded by the Academy. First one went to Charlie Chaplin, who was supposed to present the statuette to Walt on this evening, (laughs) but he decided to stay home. Uh, Walt Disney's Flower and Trees took home the Oscar for Best Short Subject Cartoon, beating out Mickey's Orphans. And it's the first time a Best Short Subject Cartoon category, today known as Animated Short Film, has been given. It's also the first year that one man has been given two awards at the same
1: ceremony. And three years ago, we were together celebrating Mickey Mouse's birthday. Mm-hmm. 90th. That's right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. So. Okay. And November 19th. Writer, Imagineer, and Disney legend William Cottrell was born in South Bend, Indiana on November 19th, 1906. His Disney credits include Pinocchio, The Reluctant Dragon, and Alice in Wonderland. Cottrell was the first president of what Disney organization?
1: Oh, I feel like I'm failing here because I'm not quite positive. Wed Enterprises,
0: today uh, known as Walt Disney Imagineering.
1: Yeah, that is. That's, uh, I should have known that.
0: <laughs> yeah, he was also the brother-in-law of Lillian and Walt Disney. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
0: So he was married to Lillian's sister. I
1: mean, just so. he, he got, the, got the job because of who he knew.
0: Mm, I don't know I'm joking (laughs) I am joking (laughs) Uh, But I guess he and Walt did hang out a lot They were good friends Never hurts Okay (laughs) Yeah. And November 20th The Disneyland television series airs the episode The Best Doggone Dog in the World On November 20th, 1957 It featured Walt Disney and Which Old Yellow Performer?
1: Uh, may, I'm going to say, I, I'm going to say there's so, maybe, so many to choose from. <laughs> Tom, uh, uh, I'm going to say Tommy Kirk
0: knows actually that I would have been my guess. It was actually Dorothy McGuire. It, it was would the mother? Not have
1: been my guess.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. She was the mother in Old Yeller. In this episode, Walt shows off his new dog named Lady, and explains that any dog is worthy of being the best dog of all. And the studio's wrapping up production on Old Yeller, so Dorothy McGuire tells some key stories about. The film as a preview. And then a the remainder of the show features the 1955 theatrical film, Arizona Sheepdog. So if you want to see this, this version of the episode was on the bonus feature of it the was. DVD release of Old Yeller in 2002. But Walt <laughs> reused this episode and updated it in 1961. And it included him narrating scenes from the upcoming One Hundred and One Dalmatians and replacing all the old Yeller um, segments mm-hmm, mm-hmm. from it. And so, this nineteen sixty one version is on the Diamond Edition Blu Ray DVD of
1: One Hundred and One Dalmatians. Yes, I, I recently have watched that version actually because I I. I swear I am going to watch Cruella one day, but I'm going through 101 Dalmatians again, too, just for for my own fun with it. So (laughs) I I did recently watch that version, but I remember it being on uh, the old Yeller DVD as well, too. Mm -hmm. You did well this week.
0: Well, since since we were talking about... um, you know, the Chris- people sharing Christmas memories at the top of the show. I, when I was listening to the Walt Disney World show and you all are talking about Christmas songs that you like and don't like. I have to, most of the ones that you don't like, I do like with the exception <laughs> of one that wham last Christmas. I will actually turn off the radio. Yeah. when that comes on or i'll switch stations i despise that song so much and it plays just as often as
1: mariah carey's song and the hard part <laughs> with it is that i i don't know about the stations in your area uh, in orlando and then you know we pull some tampa stations and some from the greater area around but the stations we mostly uh, end up getting are all iHeart radio stations and so they are all playing the exact same songs at the exact same times and so <laughs> that's it makes it so hard cuz i do like listening i i don't like listening to the radio i like listening to the radio at christmas because i like mm-hmm. the variety that it offers versus even streaming services i feel like a lot of song repeats so i like i like actual radio but if it's an iheart radio station i know that every single one is Pretty much the exact same. Every now and then, there's a little difference for oh, like commercial uh, times and stuff. But it if I don't like Last Christmas on this station, I'll switch to the next one, and I'll hear it five seconds later. So it's uh, yeah. I, I usually turn off the radio when that happens.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and depressing Karen Carpenter Christmas songs. Oh, I, I mean, I know she was going through a rough bout there, but oh my gosh. She sings so many depressing songs. She does. <laughs> I mean,
1: I, I can't listen to those. I, I a a Christmas portrait, the the Carpenter's Christmas album is like in my top five favorite albums, so but it's it is it's a journey that you go on with it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Anyway, and 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 I wanted to I wanted to give a shout out to
0: a person that has to be one of our number one fans, and that's Denny. Well, our colleague because she always gives a nice little shout out to our show, and she said some very nice things about our 200th episode, um, where we were sharing all your memories out there about your Walt Disney World memories. And Denny um, had some very kind things to say about the show, so I wanted to thank Denny for
1: that. So yeah, it was very unexpected and very appreciated. Yeah, it's um, it, I would say her enthusiasm for what we do and you know, just everything with the dis in general, it is, I I don't want to say it in a negative way, but it is a breath of fresh air that there's, uh, there's, there's other people who aren't just weighed down by all the issues that happen with Disney. And, you know, sometimes we get stuck in ruts with what we're talking about on the shows because it is so it's, I don't want to say sad, but you know, it's a lot of bad news here and there. With, with the parks and stuff. So uh, it's always nice when a voice like hers comes around and yeah. not just has great things to say about about the parks, but then also the other things that we're doing. And, uh, you know, gives us that extra motivation to, to keep going. Mm-hmm. We're not stopping mm-hmm. regardless. <laughs> but yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but it's nice to have that positivity. Mm-hmm. So
3: anyway. Oh, and,
0: and you, you've been... Putting off watching Koala, I had you know I've been I've talked several times that I've been watching the Disney animated films in order. I had been putting it off, well, partially because of Halloween, because then I get side-checked with Halloween films. But I, um oh my gosh, I finally watched Robin Hood, and I, it just reminded me why I just find it creepy and don't care for it. <laughs> and uh, th- there's just something about seeing foxes with human bodies and hands that just creeps me out it was my son's favorite film that in jungle book but um i don't know i'm just glad i'm through
1: it yeah i, I didn't
0: think it was a very inspired film personally
1: yeah but, i I, um, I mostly like the music <laughs> with it so that that's kind of the standout for me but uh yeah. in, in the length it's it's really short so Uh, Even though it's not the strongest, I feel like when you make the commitment to watch it, at least it's not overly long. But then again, most animated (laughs) Walt Disney features aren't really that long. So I I guess that's not really a selling point on it. But Mm -hmm. I like it. That's good.
0: (laughs) That's good. (laughs) I think next step is is Winnie the Pooh, which uh, I don't care for the Disney version of Winnie the Pooh, but I got to get through that it just okay. keep going
3: yeah yeah
0: all righty well
1: craig until next time how can our listeners connect with you well as always i am available on all the different uh disunplugged episodes that i am usually on but if you don't want to listen to those, then you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Teleclaster. And then you can also find me on uh, my email, if you want to email me stuff, Craig at WDW But if it's large with images and with long stories about your holiday memories, as well as uh, audio clips from your audio, uh, your holiday memories, uh, please email those at Craig at disneyinfo.com so that way i don't get a full inbox and then everything just bounces back and i don't actually get to hear your memories so craig at wdw info for for short small comments but craig at disneyinfo.com for the big ones what about you michael okay you can send me messages at michael at
0: www.info.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling one two one. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling dash connecting with Walt. Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. and you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at. Connecting Walt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at disneyplug.com And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible.